All right. Hey, good morning, Three Circle Church. Great to be with you guys today and all of our campuses joining us online right now. Uh, it's going to be a great day as we continue our series on Elijah. And uh, I hope that so far in the first few weeks of this series that you're already learning a lot, that uh, God is speaking to you. And remember, we are not studying the life of Elijah to learn about Elijah primarily. We will learn about him, but the goal is to learn about God through the life of Elijah. That is why the story of Elijah is in the scriptures. It is to point us ultimately to God, ultimately to Jesus, to the gospel. And so we definitely are going to learn a ton about one of the most interesting characters in the Bible. But in doing so, ultimately we learn about who God is, how God interacts with his people, how God interacts with someone like Elijah. And so far we've learned a little bit about the background. We know that uh, Israel is in its, maybe its darkest hour uh, ever up until that point. Uh, Ahab is the king. He's the worst king they've ever had, the most evil king. Uh, the Bible says that no king had ever provoked the anger of God more than him. You don't want that said about you, right? You don't want that to be a description of yourself. That's who Ahab was. He'd married a wicked, wicked person, Jezebel, who was from an area called Sidon. Sidon was the epicenter of Baal worship. Baal was a false god. Uh, there were claims that Baal could do all sorts of things, but no one had ever seen him do it because he was a fake false god. Uh, but Baal worship had infiltrated Israel because of Jezebel. Jezebel was a strong personality. Ahab was not. And Jezebel, when they got married, comes over to Israel and says, hey, we're not going to, whoever this one living God you guys have talked about, that's done. We're going to now worship my God. We're going to worship Baal. And she got his permission to do that. She had him build with, uh, construction projects of temples uh, and worship sites to Baal across Israel, if you can believe that. And then she went out and murdered a whole bunch of the prophets of the living God, all in the name of false worship. All of that is going on. And then we learned a few weeks ago, Elijah, uh, from this hillbilly town of, uh, of Tishbe, shows up. No one knew who he was. He was a nobody. Comes out of nowhere, but we learned really fast in week one about his theology, about what he understood about himself, and what he believed about prayer. And this was a man who had been preparing for that moment, like an Olympic runner. You see him win the gold, but you weren't there for all the practices. We see Elijah step onto the scene, and what we can surmise from his actions is this guy's been walking with God for a long time. To walk into the palace and risk his life and in such a succinct yet authoritative manner tell Ahab and Jezebel, the living God, there's only one, he is the living God, your gods are false and I'm going to shut up the heavens. It will not rain until I tell it to rain again. Amazing. And then last week we saw that immediately after that, Elijah goes to a brook, all right, this brook by a place called Sharith and there God takes care of Elijah. Now, why did he go from being uh, on the public platform to now going private for a while? Well, because God has some big things ahead that he wants Elijah to do, and he's not ready for that yet. So God takes him into the privacy of the wilderness and shows him that he can provide for him. You remember how he provides for Elijah? He provides for him water from the brook, and he brings what we call the dirty birds, the ravens, bringing food every single day. Dirty birds. In the Old Testament, ravens were like our buzzards. How many of you have ever been going down the road, seen a group of buzzards, and thought, you know what, I want to get in on that. Whatever they're eating, I'm going to get a little bit of that, right? No one has ever said that. 
But that's who God has bringing food to Elijah. What was the point? The point was, Elijah, I can provide for you through anything. I can bring good out of wicked. I can make a way where there seems to be no way. And Elijah's going to need that lesson as his life progresses and his mission becomes clear. He's going to need that. And we learn so much. We learn that God provides for us in the same way, that God can do immeasurably more than we ever imagined. So, so far, we have learned so much about God. Today, we're going to look at this next episode because we ended last week with Elijah going to Sidon. He went into Baal country and he meets a widow there who God had told him, I've got a widow who I've spoken to. She's going to take care of you. I've told her to take care of you. And, and we learned that first things first principle last week because when Elijah got there, he told the lady, hey, I know you think you're going to starve to death because there was a famine. And who caused the famine? Elijah. He had prayed for it. He said, I know you think you're going to die, but if, you will, if you'll take care of me first the way God told you to, if you'll obey him first, you're never going to run out of food. And he worked a miracle, a miracle that Baal was supposed to be able to work. These are Baal worshipers. And Baal cannot take care of the people. They're starving to death. But this man who represents the one true living God shows up and he works a food miracle. And the food just keeps multiplying. And she keeps making food and there keeps being food. How many of you would like your pantry to work that way? I have teenagers now. I sure would like a little of that. Mine runs out. But hers didn't run out. She didn't have a grocery store to run to. God doesn't have to do that for my pantry. I've got Publix and Piggly Wiggly down the road. This lady, though, if that little bit of oil and that little bit of flour ran out, they die. But it didn't run out because she obeyed God first. We learned that principle. But now you think, okay, she's so happy the food didn't run out, but watch what happens next. Today, we're going to look at a very important episode. And before we do, let me remind you about something about Elijah. Because you can see Elijah, you saw him work a miracle last week. You're going to see him work an even greater one today. And you will be tempted, like all of us who study the Bible, to think, that guy has something I don't have. That guy must be a superhero. Elijah is different than me. But the Bible wants you to be clear that that is not the case. James 5, 17. Elijah was a man, and that word there means human. He was a human with a nature like ours. And yet he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. What is James in the New Testament getting you to understand? First of all, he wants you to understand Elijah is not one of the Avengers. Remember that. We're not talking about Thor or Captain America here. He does not have an infinity stone. He's just a human. And what that tells me is if I follow God the way Elijah followed God, great things can happen in my life as well as a normal guy. And you as well, you can know that. But what does James tell us the key is? What's the bridge between Normal, ordinary little life to extraordinary, epic things happening in my life. It's clear. It's prayer. Prayer is what set Elijah apart. It was his prayer life, which means it wasn't something special about Elijah. It was something special about the God that he prayed to. So we'll say this. Elijah was an ordinary man, but he followed an extraordinary God, and that led to incredible things. So if you don't pray, you're not unlocking the extraordinary in your life when it comes to following God. And so now we'll jump into 1 Kings 17, 17 through 18, and we'll see what happens after he works the food miracle. He's going to work a bigger one today. It says this, after this, after what? After the food multiplied. After Elijah made the flour multiply. And after he made the oil multiply. Of course, she's happy. Now, the Bible... the makes pretty clear this is a woman 
who evidently hasn't fully bought into Baal, but she's not fully bought into the living God. She's learning. She's new to how to interact with the living God. So she's probably thinking at this point, wow, this is amazing. The food multiplied, but watch what it says. After this, the son of the woman, remember she's a widow with a son. The mistress of the house became ill and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. In other words, he died. Verse 18, and she said to Elijah, now watch. Watch her response to suffering. She said, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Now, just like that first scripture we studied a few weeks ago told us so much about Elijah, that sentence tells us so much about this widow, and I can empathize with her, and I think you can as well, because I don't always handle suffering well either. And my flesh goes down a dark road when things don't go the way I want them to go. How many of you are the same way? How many of you like life better when it's easy? See, like there's eight of you that are honest. The rest of you are lying right now, okay? And I, and I can see you guys at the campuses too in my mind. And, and, and I bet you don't want to admit. How many of you suffering's not your favorite thing? Can we just be honest? I've never awakened in the morning and went, you know what, God, what I want today is more suffering. None of us ask for that. Yet it does come. And what we see here is this woman, although she's beginning to interact with the living God through Elijah, and she certainly was and should be uh, uh, praised for the fact that she obeyed God with the prodding of Elijah. She didn't immediately do it. She had to learn that lesson. She's beginning to learn. She's what we would call seeker in many ways. She's not there yet, but she's beginning to brush the edges of who the one true God is. And then suffering hits. And what we find out, and suffering always does this. Look, it's the sponge principle. If you take a sponge and squeeze it, what's in the sponge is coming out, right? You squeeze the sponge, what's in the sponge is coming out. Nothing squeezes a human like suffering. Suffering exposes. When things don't go your way, it exposes things. And so here the woman is squeezed, so to speak. And what is in her and the way she views life comes out. And it is a worldly view of sufferings. And today what I want, I want to show you is that many of us may, if we're not careful, have a worldly view of, of suffering. And let me tell you what it is. And we see it from the woman. A worldly view of suffering says, number one, God is against me. God is against me and fate is actually the all-powerful thing. There's, there's just this inevitable rolling forward of my life and there's no external influences on it at all. It's just fate, and bad things are going to happen. And, and if there is a God, he's against me clearly. If I believe in a God, he obviously has my number. And he's a celestial killjoy with a big hammer in his hand, and he just likes to, to make us squirm. And that is a worldly view of suffering. It is a dangerous view of suffering. And here's the deal. Can I be honest with you for a second? I am a Bible-believing Christian and have been for a long time. But if I'm not careful, when I walk through suffering, and suffering is an inevitability for you in this life, when I have walked through suffering at times, I have fallen into that trap. I have thought, why are you against me? Notice something else she immediately ties it to, and this is so human. This must be payback for my sin. She doesn't tell us what her sin is, but her mind immediately says, all the bad things I've done in my life, that's it. That is finally coming back to haunt me. It's coming up to bite me now. Haven't we all been there? Can you empathize with the widow a little bit? 
I can get where this lady's coming from. And the, the letdown it must have been. She's so excited about, oh my goodness, there is a God and, and, and he does great things. And now, oh my goodness, this God who does great things will allow this? Haven't we all been there? Give your life to Jesus and then something bad happens and you think, wait a minute, I didn't know this was in the deal. I thought I'd come to Jesus and everything would be perfect. And the problem is we get taught that in some circles. Everything will be perfect. And then you walk with Jesus very long. And how many, how many of you know the, it doesn't quite go that way, does it now? And all you have to do is look at the lives of the apostles in the New Testament and go, you know, those stories don't go the way I really want mine to go. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. And the way we view it and the way we walk through it will say so much. It's an exposure of how we see God and how we see our own lives. It's very important for us to understand. So we see how she sees it. She believes God must be against me. God is trying to get me. Suffering must be a bad thing. It must be a horrible thing. But the biblical view of suffering is different. Now listen to what 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13 says before we give you the fill in there. It says this, beloved. So Peter, let me just warn you here or, or inform you. Peter is talking to a group of Christians who are under intense. 1 Peter, 2 Peter was written to the church under intense persecution. It's as bad as it gets. And he says to them, beloved, do not, I love his language, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. Do you hear the inevitability of that? He doesn't say if it comes. He says when it comes, do not be surprised. When it comes upon you to, oh, we get the motivation to test you. And don't do this. Don't act like it is though something strange were happening to you. But instead, here's his admonition, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is real. And that's what ultimately is going to happen. True biblical suffering that is being allowed in your life. Now, remember, he makes a point here. He says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. What that means is, don't consider results of your sinfulness, like when you have consequences of sin and you suffer for that, don't go, well, I told a lie and it all blew up in my face, I'm suffering for Jesus here. Like, no, no, that's a different deal. That's consequences of sin. But when you're following God and suffering comes upon you, Peter says, you're now suffering with Christ. You are taking part in what he took part in. And that is going to lead to his glory being revealed. And it is a test for us. It's not strange. Don't let, don't let anything you've ever heard tell you that suffering in the Christian life must mean you don't have faith. It must mean you're not walking with God enough. It must mean you haven't given enough money to the local ministry or whatever. No, no, no. It's not strange for Christians to suffer. Let me say it again. That's what Peter's saying. It's not strange for Christians to suffer. What is important is how we do suffer. So we would say this. A biblical view of suffering is different than the world's. We see suffering being a means to, a vehicle for this. Number one, it grows us. Number two, it identifies us. Number three, it strengthens us, yes. And finally, it purifies us. It grows us. 
In the book of James, it says we should take joy when we suffer because it is, it is going to be the means by which God matures us. He hits the fast-forward button on our lives and our maturity in Christ when he allows us to suffer. And there is a plan. It is not haphazard. It is not accidental. He has a plan in how he uses it like a surgeon. He is accurate in the way he allows suffering in the life of believers. And it grows us. And the book of James says you should take joy in it because you can trust that suffering and hard things and trials will lead to your maturity. In other words, what Peter said, to the glory of God. So we would say this. Tim Keller says it like this. Suffering refines us. It does not destroy us. And why? Because God is with us. Suffering for the Christian does not destroy us. Instead, it refines us because God is with us. If you're not a believer, suffering is just a random, horrible thing that destroys your life. But if you're a believer, you have the surgeon of heaven using the correct implements to get down into who you are and truly change you. And nothing works quite like suffering. Suffering's like fertilizer. I used to grow up, uh, I, I grew up around gardens. Everybody in my family had a garden. And everybody used some miracle Grow, man. And there was this other fertilizer we used that was all natural. Because <laughs> my grandfather had cows. And I'm going to leave it right there. But it worked. And I was a part of the procurement of said fertilizer. That was, anyway, life on a farm. But it worked. And you know what? My family is always proud of the okra and the tomatoes. And you could tell the ones that got the fertilizer and the ones that did not. Big, plump tomatoes. Just, oh, and I love okra. Do I have any southerners in the room that love some good okra? Oh, man. That, that was kind of growing up. And, and I can remember my grandfather, my uncles, you'd go over to their house and on a Sunday afternoon, we'd go visit people, and they would say, come out here and look at my tomatoes. I was proud of it. They'd discuss the fact, this is what I'm using for fertilizer. When you see a strong, mature believer, you go, that person's been through some stuff. Rick Warren, a great pastor and theologian, says that he won't hire anyone who's not suffered, who doesn't have a suffering story for his staff. Because it's so important to fertilize our faith for us to grow. But we're going to have to remember, when we suffer, how do we view it? And we've got to view it through a biblical lens. This woman did not. But the Bible tells us we should not be surprised. Let's look at what happens next. So her son is dead, 1 Kings 17, 19 through 23. And he said to her, Give me your son. I love how Elijah, I want you to look at now Elijah the minister. You saw him as the prophet, the guy preaching to Ahab and telling them they're wrong. But how does he interact with people in a different way when the situation is different? What kind of, what kind of minister is Elijah? Can he bring the fire on the stage but also have a gentle touch with an individual? Absolutely he can. Look what he says. Give me your son. And I want you to see this, this scene of kindness and tenderness. He took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lies. Can you get that visual in your mind? He carefully takes the dead body of this boy himself. Then he lays him on his own bed. So he goes into his room where Elijah is staying. And then this is awesome to me. What you see now is in privacy, Elijah didn't know why God had allowed this either. 
He didn't, he didn't get it either. I don't want you to hear his prayer. He cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? A little insight for you. Preachers don't understand sometimes either. One, this, this lady asked me one time, she said, uh, she, she said, Chris, I have so many questions. And she said, it would really bother you, the questions that I have about God and faith and everything. And I said, ma'am, what would really bother you if you knew the questions I have? I've been studying this stuff a long time and still wrestle. Elijah, the prophet, walks into the room. And it's almost like when he gets quiet, he's like, I got this, I got this. Got the dead body. Walks into the room, closes the door, and he's like, I don't understand this. I didn't want her to hear it, God. But I don't get this. And, and can I be honest with you for a second, church? There are times we, as pastors and ministers here at 3, so we don't get it. And we, too, have to go to God and say, God, I need your help here. I am, we, I am suffering. Look, I have sat next to hospital beds. I've done funerals for kids. I've done funerals for great godly men that I didn't want to see go. And I, too, have, have gotten alone in my car, leaving a hospital or a funeral home, and said, I don't get this. I don't understand this. You know what I love is that our God can handle our questions. He's big enough to handle it. He answers in his own wonderful and beautiful way. So Elijah cries out, have you done this? Verse 21, then he, listen to this, he stretched himself out upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Verse 22, and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Isn't that good? Can I tell you today? Insert your name. If you're a believer today and you call upon the Lord, he listens to your voice as well. He listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. By the way, that's the first resurrection in the Bible. That's the first time. And a lot of other things had happened. But that's the first time the line of death had been crossed. Elijah is a big-time preview to the one who's coming. In fact, everybody thought maybe Jesus was Elijah. Elijah crosses that line of death by the power of God, and this kid is resurrected. What an awesome thing to see. But what I want you to see about Elijah is the woman draw. I want you to see the two responses. Even though Elijah still is like, God, I don't understand it. Watch the difference. The woman, because she has a worldly view of suffering, pulls away from God when she suffers. Elijah, because he has a biblical view of suffering, is going to draw near to God. Notice he doesn't pull away. He gets near. He goes straight to God. Even though he doesn't understand, he still goes to God. That is the difference in the two views. And today... I want you to understand, during suffering, we must draw close to God instead of pulling away. And many of you may be going through some hard things right now, and for some reason, you've pulled away from God. You're not spending as much time with God as you did before. And for some reason, you've allowed it to create distance between you and God. My friend, you need God now more than ever. You need to draw near to him. 
Even if you don't understand, your prayers don't have to be, God, thank you for the suffering. Like, you don't have to have it all together. God's not asking you to get your act together before you come into his presence. He just wants you to come into his presence. Bring your burdens. Bring your questions. Even bring your anger. My friends, God can handle all of that. Throughout scripture, we see men and women of God coming into God's presence honestly, vulnerably. But don't make the mistake of not going into his presence. And many of you needed to hear that today. Many of you are suffering. You're going through tough stuff. And for some reason, you've allowed that to push you away from the presence of God. And may I encourage you today to step back into his presence. Pray, unlock his presence in your life. Even if you don't get the answers you necessarily want. Because there's been a lot of people that prayed for people to be revived and cancer to go away and death to be stopped. And, and their prayers weren't answered in the way they wanted it to. In fact, Elijah's story is rare. But let me tell you what does happen. God always gives us his presence. And when the answer is not what we want it to be, God promises he will sustain us. He will walk with us. So if you're here today and you've got space between you and God, close that gap. And the thing that closes that gap is prayer. And the thing I want you to see about Elijah and how he handles this woman and this boy is this is what real ministry looks like. And today, at Three Circle Church, we believe in the priesthood of the believer. It's one of our great doctrines here that we hold to. What does that mean? It means that I'm, me and the team that are called the staff of Three Circle, we're not the only ones that are ministers. Every Christian's a minister. Every one of you are on a mission when you become a Christian. And I just want to tell you, this is what it looks like sometimes. Sometimes it looks like getting your hands dirty with the suffering of those around you. Sometimes it looks like showing up at a house of a person that doesn't believe in God yet, but because you sat next to them at ball games and got to know them over the years, suffering or calamity has come upon their family, and you are who they call. And when they call you, what are you going to do? You know what it looks like sometimes? It looks like wrapping your arms around people who are weeping and loving them and telling them who God really is. This is what ministry looks like. Sometimes it looks like standing in front of Ahab and prophetically telling the truth, but other times it looks like holding a dead kid while a woman weeps and praying and being there for. Sometimes it just looks like that. That's what ministry looks like. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And look at what he promises. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you suffer pray. The suffering may not end immediately. You may not get exactly what you asked for, but you do have a promise here. When you pray, God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? What happens next? 1 Kings 17, 24, and the woman said to Elijah, now I know. <laughs> I thought maybe this was the real deal when the food was multiplying, but maybe that was a magic trick. But look what she says. But now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Like, yeah, I bet you do. Because you knew your boy was dead and he's not dead anymore. And what I want to end today with is the great power of resurrection. It's the first resurrection. But it's not going to be the last one, as we all know. And the one that's going to change everything is when God himself, when Jesus himself doesn't raise someone else from the dead, he did that too, but when he himself is raised from the dead, defeating death. And what I want you to understand today, just like with Elijah, is there is something final 
there is something overwhelmingly convincing about resurrection. The greatest evidence of God's power is new life. I want you to understand that. The greatest testimony you have of God's power in your life to the world around you is the new life he's given you. The fact that you yourself, my friends, were dead in your sins and now you are alive and you've come alive to God and you've come alive to the way you see the world. Like you are different because of new life. We call that regeneration. Something has happened inside of you. And as we come to the end of the day, I want you to understand this woman was convinced at that point. This changed her life when she saw new life coming to her son. She believed. And Here's the deal. I just want to talk to everyone for a minute because what Elijah could have done and what she could have done is just kind of dressed up the corpse. Just kind of dressed him up and then propped him up in a chair and said, okay, I can, I can act like he's alive. Got good clothes. Got him sitting in the chair acting like he's alive, but he's not really alive yet. No, something supernatural had to happen to bring him to life. And many of us in this room and joining us online at one of our campuses, maybe you've fallen into the trap of dressing up a corpse. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, instead of believing in Christ for salvation, you've decided that you will use the teachings of Christ to be a better person. We call it moral deism. What it means is you go to church and you tip your hat. You acknowledge Jesus and you listen to the Bible and every week you may come to church or maybe you even read some stuff and you go, wow, I can implement these things into my life and become a better person. But you may not become a Christian. Christianity is not, listen, Christianity is not a better way to live. It is a better way to live, but it's not primarily a better way to live. I want you to understand that you could take the teachings of Christ and live a better human life than you could without them. But that's not Christianity. That's not saving Christianity. It is not simply a rule book to help you do better in life and treat people better. Jesus was not just a philosopher of love. He did not come just to tell people how to live better. He came to bring dead people to life. And I want to remind us today of what true Christianity is. Elijah did not just dress that little boy up. He didn't just prop him up in a chair. He prayed and new life came into that little boy. Real saving Christianity is when your life is truly changed. And at the end of this day, I want to remind everyone of that. That the real show of God's power in your life is when you have new life. Not that you show up every week. Christianity's not just going to church, guys. It's believing in the living Jesus who can give you life. The Bible says that if you will believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for your sins, and that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. But too many of us are acknowledging Jesus. Jesus said over and over again that if we will believe in him, we'll be saved. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Believe upon me. If you wonder, what does it mean to drink of Jesus? He says in the next line, it means believe upon him. If you believe in me, he says, I'll make streams of living water come out of you. In other words, you're coming to life. So when you ask, how can I really be saved today, Chris? Here's how. Don't just acknowledge him. Believe in him. And, and you may go, well, of course I believe in Jesus. No, no, no. I want you to understand, biblical belief is not acknowledgement, it is a full trusting of your life into his hands. It's kind of like sitting in a chair. All of you sat in those chairs today. I bet none of you made sure that it could hold you up. If you're in one of our campuses, you sat in a chair at Midtown 
or Daphne or Thomasville, and none of you made sure the chair could hold you. You just sat in the chair. If you're joining us online right now, you're sitting somewhere, I bet, and I bet you didn't make sure the chair could hold you. You know what that means? It means you trusted the weight of your body to the strength of that chair. And if that chair goes down, my friends, you're going down. That is what biblical belief in Jesus is. I hold nothing back, and I trust my life into the hands of Jesus. That is belief. And today, my question is, have you ever done that? Have you ever believed upon Jesus? Don't tell me you're a better person. Don't tell me you go to church. No, no. Have you believed in Jesus for salvation? My friends, he is the only way to salvation. And the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Your tomorrow is not promised to you. So today, beginning the day at Three Circle, wherever you are, whoever you are, our hope and prayer is that you would trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, the only way to eternal life, and believe upon him today and trust him. And over the next few moments, as we pray together, I hope that you would right there where you're sitting say, Jesus, I believe in you. Save me and be my Savior. I want to read this last verse for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says this about Jesus. Paul's talking about the resurrection. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have all fallen asleep in Christ, they've all just perished. He's like, there's no resurrection. They're just dead. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're all, of all people, we should be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul said Jesus did raise from the grave. And we can have real supernatural new life in him. Believe upon Jesus today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace. And I pray that every person in this room who's a Christian and every person at all of our campuses who's a Christian today would see suffering in a biblical light. But I do pray that any person under the sound of my voice that's not a Christian, that they would give their life to you today in Jesus' name. Amen.